listening to a resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. It is our joy to glorify God by treasuring Jesus in the preaching of his word. We pray this resource will be a tool used to aid in your relationship with Christ in addition to your local church. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Can we say thank you to the gentleman leading us in worship, please? Um, able to direct our hearts into a place of worship. If you can, please open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, verses 20 through 23 is where we will be this morning. Um, I'm excited to look at this text with you, and I'm excited for you to walk through it uh, yourself. So if you have a Bible, your phone, um, one from the uh, lobby, or uh, take your neighbors, just Take it from them. Uh, we need, you, you need a Bible, and uh, we're going to walk through it. Um, so far, where we have been in Luke and what we have seen thus far is that Jesus is the Messiah. That's the main point of all of the Gospels. Okay, that's the main point of why the Gospels exist in the text. Uh, John chapter 20, verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So this is why the Gospels exist. That's why they're written. That's why they're in the scripture. And what we've seen in these scriptures are uh, incredible evidences and testimonies so far that Jesus indeed is the Messiah, okay? Uh, I'm not going to reverbalize them this week, but I will do so every so often and continually. I have done so every so often to bring us back to the point of the book and really the point of the New Testament and really the point of Scripture. And so this is called, just in case you're wondering, which you're probably not, it's okay, this is technical, but also I will tell you, today is going to be a lot of technicalities. And so you're going to learn a lot about about the Bible and how to study the Bible as well as what is in this particular text. And so if you're like, I don't want to put my thinking cap on today, you got to put your thinking cap on today, okay? So what we see here is this this is the theme of the book, and this is what Luke has been doing, and this is called biblical theology, okay? That's what I know you're not wondering about, okay? But this is what this is called. So what Luke is doing is he's taking the, uh, the idea that Jesus is the Messiah, and we understand that that is the main point of what he's doing in here. And biblical theology continually brings us back to the main point of the book and to the main point of all of Scripture. So across redemptive history, from eternity past to eternity future, God is doing something um, way bigger than just making your life better, right? He's doing something very grandiose on a grandiose scale. And so what biblical theology does is it takes each passage of scripture, what we're studying, and it takes that passage and brings it back up into the grandiose picture across the spectrum of what God's actually doing. What that does is it prevents us from isolating any passage in particular and making it just simply about us because it's not ultimately about us. It's about God. We benefit from it, but it's in the grand scale of what God is doing over and across of all 
times. And so again, it's important that we bring every text that we read back up into the overall picture of what God is doing. That allows us to have a right perspective of what's actually happening in that text. And as well as that's how cross-references work because they show you across the spectrum in each aspect of the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, what God is doing. And then you can bring that text and say, how does this relate to other places across what God is doing? And you need this in your Bible reading as well. By the way, when you sit at, at your, on your couch, at your table, at your desk, wherever you sit, at the lakefront to read your Bible um, and spend time in God's Word on a daily basis, don't just take what's isolated there. Bring it back up to the overall storyline of God and ask yourself, where, does the, where do I see pictures of what I'm reading in other places in the Scripture? And so what we see here is this is very important, that Jesus is not just showing us good, healthy, moral teaching. Luke is showing us that this is the Messiah, the one who has been anticipated from the past and is going to reign into the future. And we are seeing evidences that this is him for the purpose of people believing and having salvation. And this is exactly how Jesus taught, by the way, just in case you're wondering that. John 5, 39, look at this. Jesus said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Like, let me just search this, figure out what I got to do to have eternal life. And he says, you don't understand. It's the scriptures that bear witness about me. Like this is what the scriptures are about. This is how this thing works. And so these scriptures are not in isolated places for self-help. They do help, but they are in light of the totality of scripture. So what's ultimate aim? What God is doing across history, right? And so this is biblical theology. And this is why we look at the text the way that we do, the book of Luke in particular. And so we've seen these evidences right now that Jesus is showing himself to be the Messiah, the long anticipated anointed one that people are waiting on for the purpose that people would believe and then have salvation in his name. Now, as Jesus begins his ministry in the, the, the gospel that we're reading, Luke, as he begins his ministry, Jesus is showing that he is the Messiah himself, but he's also showing the new way in which his kingdom works. If he's the Messiah and those who believe in his name would receive eternal life, he's got a new way. He's got a new kingdom. It's not by religious acts. It's not by Judaism. It's by love by the love of God who sends his son uh, in the compassion and the mercy that he has to save sinners. Um, and this is going to be by his blood. Salvation will be through him. This is the new way. And this is what Jesus is putting forth through his ministry. And you can see, again, biblical theology, that moves into the book of Acts. Like, that's the purpose. Jesus is bringing his kingdom. And then Luke continues it as he writes the book of Acts. His kingdom is continuing. But we see this new way. Look at this. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. This is an example of what highlights and, under, and helps our understanding of what is actually happening. Look at this. Ready? Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence in to enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus, so now you can go before the throne of God because of Jesus. You can be saved uh, in his presence by this. Look, the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. So this is what Jesus is doing. He's showing us this new way through his blood, through his flesh, that those who believe would receive eternal life. Now listen, this is an upside down kingdom. What we've noticed so far is that this hasn't happened the way you would anticipate. He's come in in a humble and hidden way, not like you would expect. The opposite of what a sinful man would expect and the opposite of what a Pharisee would expect, right? So this kingdom, Jesus is the Messiah. He is teaching about his kingdom and his kingdom is upside down to the world. It's upside down to the religious. What we have seen so far is that he offers forgiveness. He's got the authority to forgive. Who is this forgiveness for? It's for sinners, right? Like that is upside down because the religious think that the 
that the eternal life will come for those who are good enough, who can hold to a religious law. This is upside down. He shows this new way. He's Lord over the Sabbath. You can't trust in the Sabbath. You got to trust in the Savior. Not only will this gospel save sinners, this is upside down, but here's the deal. It's going to use sinners. Sinners will advance this gospel. It will, uh, sinners will advance the cause. Like he's going to use sinners, not Pharisees, to advance this gospel. And we see that this is through prayer, common men. The Pharisees are not right. Jesus is. This is the new way. And so listen, last week, leading up into this week, what we see is that even though this is upside down, even though we see Jesus showing himself to the, be the Messiah, many people not believing, this gospel being humble and hidden, this not being at all what the world would anticipate, the gospel is moving forward fast. We saw last week that it's, it's moving. People are believing. The gospel is advancing. It's changing the world, and it's because God's power is behind it. Now, listen, today, what we're going to see is now Jesus is starting to give explicit sermon-based teaching for us about this upside-down kingdom. Okay? And today, what we're going to read is indeed a sermon. It's the upside down way. Okay? And here's the essence of this upside down way that you're going to hear today as Jesus begins this sermon. The upside down way is that in every aspect for those who believe and follow him, here's one characteristic that is true. The characteristic that is true of anyone who is a Christian follows him and trusts in him and wants to live for him, the characteristic that is true is that Jesus now has supremacy in your life in all things. The characteristic of this upside down kingdom is that Jesus is now supreme. Now this is upside down because there are plenty of other things for these religious people that should be supreme, like their works. And this is upside down to the lost world because there are plenty of other things that should be supreme, like money, job, security, power, and other pursuits. And so Jesus's kingdom is upside down. This is the way of salvation though. This is the way in which this is going to work. Jesus is teaching his new way. The way of a Christian becoming a Christian is when Jesus becomes their treasure. Not simply a mere knowledge of facts, but Jesus is saying the way in which you will become one of my true disciples is not through you listening to me once in a while and following me. The way you will become a true disciple of me is not simply by liking the miracles that I do. The way in which you will become a Christian is not simply by seeing my miracles and thinking I'm great. The way you will become a Christian is when you see me as your greatest treasure. And this is also the way of Christian living. The Christian has Jesus constantly in the position of supreme value. And so Jesus is teaching this. This is the upside down kingdom, not what the religious or the world or the natural would think. Jesus exalts what the religious would despise. He exalts what the world would despise, namely him being as supreme. And he rejects what the world admires, namely anything else being supreme. And so in essence, a true Christian, Jesus is your treasure. And Jesus is going to show us today that that is the one in which, in whom we'll receive eternal life. So my prayer for you today, as we look at this, is that you would make Jesus your treasure. Plain and simple, that Jesus would be supreme in every place in your heart and your life. 
that you would make Jesus supreme in all categories and that you would make him your treasure even for salvation first and foremost. It's not through a mere knowledge or an understanding or a, a, a vain belief. Christianity comes to pass in your life, you become a Christian when Jesus is your treasure, when you have made Jesus your supreme treasure. And so also, this is how a Christian lives. And so Jesus is showing this upside down way and it is indeed upside down. It's, it's not easy, um, but we're gonna see the truth of this and he's gonna practically help us through it. So let's pray and ask for God's help. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity that we have to come before you today. I pray, Lord, that you'd give us just clarity and accuracy. That's it. I just wanna be clear and I wanna be accurate. There's, uh, even with this short passage, there's so many technicalities to it. Um, and my goal today, I know that your, your um, commission for me as the preacher is simply to expose what's really here. That's exposition. I pray that I would just expose it. And God, that you would help me to be faithful in doing so, so that this people who are sitting here would understand your word rightly and so have the truth. And God, I pray that as we have the truth, we would see that you call us blessed when we have made you our treasure because our reward is great. And I pray that we would see those who will receive the reward are those who have indeed made you their treasure. I pray that the people in this room today, it would click, their eyes would be open, their hearts would be softened, and you would become supremely valuable as you, Jesus, were teaching those who were following you what it really looks like to enter into the kingdom of God. I pray that you'd help us in Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter six, starting in verse 20. I'm gonna read through verse 26. We're only gonna be covering verses 20 through 23, uh, but next week uh, will be a part two to this. Um, I'm gonna refer to it often, and Lonnie, who is preaching next week, is probably gonna get mad at me because he's gonna be like, you took all my material, bro, right? Because I gotta refer to it a lot. But um, we're gonna read all of it to give you an understanding, because I'm gonna use it and refer to it, and then we're only going to walk through verses 20 through 23. So let's read it. Verses 20 through 26 of Luke chapter six. Here we go. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and when they revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets, and but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when people, when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Whew. 
you just read that, you know it's coming, right? Like, here we go, okay? So listen, as I take you through this, what we're gonna see is, again, I'm just, I wanna be clear and accurate today because there's a lot of technicalities to this, so I'm gonna move very methodically, okay? So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not gonna jump all around, but I, I gotta really move slow, methodically, and we gotta think through this, and so stay with me. Put your thinking caps on, okay? We're gonna get through it. As we get into this, what you're gonna notice is the structure. There's four blessings and there's four curses. I'm sure you guys have seen this and they're corresponding, right? So the first blessing corresponds with the first woe. The second blessing corresponds with the second woe. The third blessing corresponds with the? You got it, here we go. So listen, this is what's happening and the fourth the same. Now, this is a very common passage, many people um, know this passage, they've seen this passage and understood this passage, or maybe have thought they have understood this passage. But let me tell you, um, this passage, specifically in the first couple of verses, is um, a subject of great debate. Um, even the best preachers and the best scholars in all the world uh, differ in their um, understanding of this passage. Now, lest you think that that's like uncommon, it's not, believe me, like in seminary, I mean, I had the guys who wrote the books, right? And, uh, and you'd have two guys who wrote the book on the same subject, and I go to one class, and one is moving us in one direction, and the other class, the other is moving us in another direction, and they just disagree, and that's okay. It gives us a perspective we don't understand fully all the time um, what's actually happening in all of the scriptures. And so why, why I say that there's a discrepancy here is that because Matthew records the same sermon. It's not a discrepancy in that it's inaccurate. It's just a difference in um, opinion of how to, uh, to take this, right? And I'm gonna explain this to you. So Matthew records a sermon, and this sermon is much more extensive. Matthew version of this is chapter five, uh, chapters five through seven, so it's two full chapters. Luke's version of this is verses 20 through 49 in the same chapter. So much different in length, right? And that's not bad, that's okay, because what we see is that the gospels, um, each writer has a particular way of either condensing or elongating something in particular to show different emphasis. God, the Holy Spirit, uh, moved the writers in this direction. So in this passage between Luke and Matthew, the words are very similar, but they're not identical, which is okay. It's not actually anything new that we've, we haven't, it's not like we haven't seen this across the spectrum of what we've studied in Luke. We bring usually the one gospel to clarify the other gospel. But when we're speaking of these particular verses, the, ba deba the debate is not whether or not they contradict, okay? Because they don't contradict, right? They don't contradict, and anyone, even if you don't believe in God and hate the Bible, you'll see if you put these two, they don't contradict. So that's not the debate, which by the way, let me just take a moment for a second and help you again with the technicality. As a Christian, your presupposition is that the Bible doesn't contradict. You go into the scriptures believing that there's no contradiction, right? That's how we function as Christians. We have childlike faith in the scriptures. Now, if that sounds silly, well, that's why the Bible tells us that the Christian faith to the world is what? Silly. So we're taking this as, listen, this is what it is and it doesn't contradict itself before you even get into it because listen, if you read two different things that seem to contradict themselves, the issue is not with the text, the issue is with us, right? In our understanding because if we claim that it's with the text, then here's what we have to claim. We have to claim that we understand every aspect of the text, we understand every detail, and we're in a place of authority to determine whether or not these two texts are uh, in opposition to one another. And 
practically speaking, unfortunately, listen, most Christians understand very little about the Bible. Um, and I w- I'm included in that. And also, I, man, when I became a Christian, like, I tell you what, I was embarrassed. My wife and I, you think I'm kidding, my wife and I, for the first year of our mar- marriage, read the Jesus Storybook Bible every day so I could just get a grasp of the stories, right? Like, that's how out of touch I was. I didn't come to Christ till I was 22 years old. And so, like, with this, like, man, believe me, I understand that. So with that, we're definitely not in a position to make judgment on whether or not the Scripture contradicts itself. But listen, even if you did understand everything about the particular text that you're looking at, We have this little thing called a sin, what? Nature. So it distorts truth. Like that's one thing that our sin nature does ultimately. And with that being the case, our hearts and our mind can't fully determine whether or not something is true. And so listen, God writes this scripture. It's holy, it's perfect. We should trust him and his holiness, right? And God warns about us like trying to add to, take away, and try to understand this in terms of our thinking um, in Revelation 22, 18 through 19. Look at this. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues, described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which is described in this book. So listen, those are just words of help, bonus material, okay? Because here, once again, the issue is not whether or not these scriptures contradict themselves. But listen, here it is. The debate whether it comes as whether or not these are the same sermons. Like, are these the same exact events in which Jesus is speaking. Now you say, well, they're incredibly similar, so absolutely. Well, listen, Jesus undoubtedly spoke many of the same truths to different people. Jesus, um, like the words that we see in his word, right? Like, because the truth doesn't change, we have it recorded, so it doesn't change. One person in like, maybe, like Brazil or Turkmenistan or Argentina or Afghanistan, they might read the same truths and the truths are the same. Same way, Jesus speaks the same truth at different times to different people. But for Jesus, these are the words of his lips. And so these unchanging truths, stay with me, these unchanging truths are being spoken just, are they being spoken at the exact same time? Is that the recording? And why is it relevant to our study? Why am I telling you all of this? Because listen, what we have to understand here is what this text is saying. And it's relevant because what Luke is recording is not just simply different wording. The way in which he records it emphasizes something else, right? And it's not that the two concepts are contradictory because listen, frankly, these two gospel writers inspired by the Holy Spirit are speaking to the same concept, which is salvation in Jesus's name. But the question is whether they are giving us different details in the different accounts so that we might interpret them and understand salvation in a multifaceted way. Understand? So the words of Matthew, they include things that Luke doesn't. They're not contradictory, but they emphasize different things. And so personally, after much study, which who am I, right? But here's my understanding. I think this is probably the same sermon. And I think it's the exact same event. But I think it's okay that the writers differed on their writing. And I don't think that we should try to force Luke's passage into Matthew's. I think most of the time it's okay to use those things to clarify each other, but I think that Luke does this on purpose and Matthew does this on purpose through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 
So if we should try to fit Matthews into Luke's or Luke's into Matthews, I think we're gonna get a great understanding and it's gonna be biblical truth. But what I think again is that God is showing us from the same words of Jesus, multifaceted truth, right? And that's okay because this is the nature of scripture. I think God intended to emphasize both from two different writers with these details. So here, I think it's on purpose. Different does not mean contradictory. Jesus can easily mean multiple things, address multiple aspects of salvation and Christian living, dual meaning, similar or even same exact words. Let me give you an example, and then we're gonna get into it. Ephesians 5, look at this. Therefore, a man shall give you, leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let see that his wife uh, respects her husband. Are you talking about Christ and the church? Because that's what you say you're referring to, Paul, but you're also talking about what? Marriage. So this is not, I mean, there's so high level truth that there are so many facets of this truth. Jesus is saying multiple things at the same time. So listen, here's what we understand. This is on purpose. So what's the debate specifically? Let me just show you. Specifically is Matthews refers to the spiritual only, right? The question is, does Luke also incorporate physical aspects to point to the spiritual, okay? Does Luke include physical aspects to point to the spiritual or should Luke's be interpreted as Matthews that they're purely spiritual? Now, all things are spiritual, but when once again, I think what Luke is doing is something different. I think Luke is showing on purpose the physical aspects to bring even more clarity. Here's the details of it. Let me show you. Everyone in your Bible, Bible drill, I told you today's technical. Move into Matthew chapter five, okay? Just a couple of books to your left, okay? Or if you're on a phone, scroll up, okay? Um, Matthew chapter five, okay? Matthew chapter five. Keep your finger there in Matthew chapter five. Okay, this is all setting us up. You gotta do this stuff, okay? You should do all of this by yourself at home before you read. Just kidding. Um, this is a lot, but it's good for us to understand. Now look, ready? Luke chapter six, verse 20. We're gonna flip back and forth for just a minute. Luke chapter six, verse 20. He lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, blessed are you who are, what? For yours is the kingdom of God. Now flip back, Matthew chapter five, Verse three, blessed are the poor in, now that's a different meaning. See, the difference is not just that it clarifies itself, it's just that it's a very much so different point of emphasis. And so the theme is the same, but the poor in spirit here are those who literally, you're bankrupt. I have no, nothing to offer spiritually. Therefore, I have nothing to offer you, God, and I need a savior. Blessed are those because they receive eternal life. True completely. Is Luke saying the same thing? I don't think so. He's emphasizing something different on purpose. Let's do it again. Verse 21 of Luke, verse 21. Ready? Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Luke chapter, or Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Again, spiritual, pure spiritual. It's not talking at all about the physical, so it's not that they contradict themselves, they're just different in emphasis, wondering which one should we take? Should we interpret Matthew like Luke and Luke like Matthew? See why that's really important? Because I don't know what to do with this text in Luke unless I figure this problem out, understand? So, with that being the case, I'll just tell you, this is what I believe it is doing. I think Luke is using the physical, 
can stay in Luke now. We won't walk through all of them. You can, I think Luke is using the physical to illuminate to us spiritual realities. I think he's doing that on purpose. The reason also why I think that's true is stay in Luke now, jump down to the woes, verses 24 through 26, the happy part, right? If you go down to Luke in the woes, look at the statements and they're meant to, to be opposites. Woe to you who are what? Okay, so that seems pretty literal. For, the, for you who have received your consolation, like if you're rich, like woe to you because, and we're gonna explain what this means. So it's not just every person is bad, but you've received your reward, which is your riches, okay? So that's literal in that sense. The same thing with woe to you who are what? Full now, for you shall be hungry. And the rest of them are literal too. So what we see, again, that they correspond exactly, the differences show us, I think, even in this context, that what we understand rightly is that Luke is doing something different, illuminating the same understanding of salvation as Matthew, just emphasizing different things. So I think what we see is we can choose this cohesive theme of all the gospel, of all the scripture, and see the physicals, uh, physical nature of what Luke is showing us in reality. And it helps us to understand salvation with Matthew to even greater extent. Also, let me show you one more thing, one more technicality. Remember last week how we talked about the word for and how big of a treasure that is when you're reading the scripture, like F-O-R, right? Because it gives us reasonings. Well, this week you're gonna see it used powerfully. So notice that, okay? So again, upside down way, Jesus is supreme. This is the way of salvation. This is the marks of a Christian, although upside down, right? This is the right way. This is the way in which someone is a Christian and the way in which someone lives as a Christian, um, that Jesus is supreme. Jesus is your treasure. So the first thing that we see at four points, corresponding with the four blessings, um, the first aspect that we see in Jesus's upside down kingdom, what it involves, it involves Jesus over wealth. The first thing that we see is that it involves Jesus over wealth. Michelle, you got me on those verses. Thank you very much. Last, uh, last uh, service, I forgot to put the verse reference. I just mentioned it quickly. Michelle is on it every week. So if everyone say thank you to Michelle. All right, verse 20, right? Number one, Jesus over wealth. What we're seeing are the aspects of this upside down kingdom. And again, I think he's speaking to the actual physical. And so what we see is verse 20. Look at this, follow along in the scripture with me because this is, this, this, I'm explaining it to you, but by the end, um, it's gonna be a reality check for all of us, okay? Verse 20, now you're excited about it. Jesus is not healing anymore. Jesus is teaching. So he's sitting as a teacher would and he lifted up his eyes and his eyes are upon who? Disciples. As we talked about last week, in many cases, those people, those disciples, that category are those who would maybe eventually even turn away from Jesus, right? So not all are saved. Despite even in its simplest form, uh, disciple means a learner. So uh, a learner, a regular follower, but they're across the spectrum. Some have heard, some are just now hearing, some are wanting to follow, some are saved, some are faithful believers, some are new believers, some are temporary learners. It's across the spectrum. And I think this speaks to us for a second because listen, if Jesus is speaking to this crowd and everybody in this crowd is across the spectrum, some of you are completely um, enamored with Jesus. You love him with all your heart. You're obsessed with him and you wanna live every moment for him. And some of you are just exploring this and some of you are understanding it for the first time and some of you are completely bored with him. 
right? His word in your life has zero power. Like you listen to the Bible or talk about the Bible or read the Bible and you're like, this is the most dry thing I have ever experienced in my life, right? Well, that's crazy because Jesus doesn't say it's supposed to go like that, right? Your heart is supposed to be on fire at the even uh, the viewing of his word, right? Like you're, you're, you're jumping in your heart because it's so satisfying. So if the issue, if that's not happening, again, the issue is with us, not with the text. And so what's happening here is these people are all across the spectrum. And these disciples are not all true disciples because we see all throughout the scriptures that even those who are called disciples have turned away. Look at this, John chapter six. After this, many of his disciples did what? They turned back, they no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you wanna go away as well, Simon Peter? Or, or as well, and Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You got the words of eternal life. Like he gets it, right? But not only this, look at this. In the last section of this, did I not choose you the 12 and yet one of you is the devil? He spoke of Judas. So even out of his 12 apostles, one did what? Turned away. So listen, this is a group of people who some will follow, some won't. And he's describing to them what a true believer looks like. And this is good to take heed to um, that not all disciples in the scriptures prove to be true disciples because it makes us um, serious about our faith. Doesn't make us flimsy about it. Matthew 24, 13, look at this. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. So let's make it our goal, church. Let's make it our goal to make it to the end. And so prove to be a true disciple, not by your works, but as the evidence that your faith is real, right? John 8, 30 through 31, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are my true disciples. And so this is the group. And if these are the disciples, then what he's saying is that blessed are you people when you do something very specific, when you think a certain way, when you act a certain way, and that way is that Jesus is your treasure. And let me explain to you. He's saying this to his disciples, keep your eyes on the text, to the people who are following him. Blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God. Now here's what we gotta do. Let's dissect this. This first aspect, this first point is the most elaborate. The other ones then once we establish this are easy. What's blessed mean? Well, when you look at this first verse 20, stay with it, he lifted up his eyes. He's looking at the disciples, blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed should be understood rightly as most favored. Ready? You are blessed. You are in the most favorable position. You could not be in a more favorable position than this position of blessed. That's what blessed means. And you're happy because of it, right? Like this is not like misery. You are happy because you are in the greatest possible position, possible. <laughs> like that's the position you're in, right? And woe means the exact opposite, which is the worst possible condition. There could be no condition worse in the woe than being one who is a subject of the woe, right? Don't be a subject of the woe, okay? 
So here's what we see. And we saw this in Psalm 1. Remember the song that we sing and the, and the text that we read with the, the passage that we went through, the series that we walked through in Psalm 1? Blessed are you. Happy. You're in a favorable position and your life is in a favorable position because of the truths of this psalm and you holding to them. And so what Jesus is saying is you are blessed. You're in the greatest possible position. You are favor, in a favorable position when you are poor. Now, we're going to talk about this in a minute. Matthew doesn't mean the physical. Matthew means spiritually bankrupt. You're in a favorable position because you see your need for a savior and are saved. Totally true. Luke is emphasizing something different, and we're going to talk about it. Four, you're in a favorable position if you're poor. Keep your eyes there. We're going to talk about that in a second. I want to show you the reward first, then we're going to come back around. Four, here's the reason why you're in a favorable position, because you get a reward. What's your reward? Your reward is the kingdom of God. Blessed, the most, here's what a real Christian looks like. You are in the greatest possible position. You should be happy. You have the most favorable position possible because your reward is great. What's the reward? Notice Jesus is not saying the reward is the products of the kingdom of God. He's instead saying your reward is the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? Well, the kingdom of God across scripture is God's reign and God's rule. The kingdom of God is when Jesus is what? King. There's a kingdom when there's a king. So to the Christian, for the Christian, the greatest possible reward that we can inherit is God himself. It's having him as our king. He is supremely valuable. He is the reward. He is who we get because there could be nothing greater than God, even objectively, even if you're not a believer in this room. Let me just ask you, what could be greater than God in terms of what we believe? Nothing. So what could be greater, a greater reward that we could possibly get? Nothing. God is the greatest reward you can even get. So the reward even objectively, is that the person who is blessed is the one who is going to receive God as their reward, the one who is truly saved. He's the reward. This is upside down. Like, that's not a reward to the world, right? Like, give me the riches. Give me everything that comes along with that, but hold God, right? Like, but to the Christian, him being the reward is true. We are satisfied in his presence. He is satisfying his great love. We are enamored by his greatness. There could be nothing greater than getting him. So this is the reward, right? This is the reward. And the key thing that we see in all of these verses is that it's looking versus the now and the later, right? Is if your focus is on right now, you're gonna lose the reward. If your focus is on eternity and later, then you get the greatest possible reward reward. Look at this, Matthew 10, 39. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is the up, upside down way about a Christian. This is the upside down kingdom. One who is blessed, most favorable position because they get God as their supreme treasure for all of eternity. This is the, the greatest possible position you could be in. And oh, for our culture, if we could see that Jesus is the reward, right? So now we go back to the condition. The condition is being poor. Blessed are you who are poor, if you are poor, because you have the great reward of getting God. So what does he mean here? Well, Jesus is not teaching that if you are poor, you are saved, okay? He's not telling you to get poor, right? All of you, get poor quick and you'll be saved, right? Many of you 
would say, I could do that pretty easily, <laughs> right? That's an easy road to salvation. This is not a poverty gospel. We talk a lot about prosperity gospel. Prosperity gospel says Jesus died to make you wealthy. The poverty gospel says you must be poor in order to be qualified to receive salvation. This is not the poverty gospel. It's not saying if you are poor, you will go to heaven. It's not teaching that all who are poor are saved, even God haters. It's not teaching that the qualification to receiving this blessing is that you are poor, although Matthew's is that way. If you are spiritually bankrupt and poor and see your great need, that is the qualification for receiving the savior. This is not teaching that. This is not also character refinement, saying that the greatest way you can which you can live is to be poor, because even look at Proverbs 30, eight through nine, remove far from me falsehood and lying, give me neither poverty nor riches, feed me with the food, that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Even poverty in scripture can be viewed as, as a curse. So it's not that poverty in itself is great. Here's what he's saying. The implication here is having God is more valuable than having wealth. Blessed are you. In the most favorable position are you. Because that's the evidence of one who is truly saved and your reward will be great. You will get God your treasure for all of eternity. This is the blessed one who has made Jesus their treasure. It's their great reward. Blessed are those who are willing to be poor for his sake. Even if we go down and see, it clarifies. Blessed are the people who are persecuted for the son of God. Maybe we can bring that up and it enlightens what we see in the beginning of this. The one who will inherit eternal life is the one who makes Jesus their treasure. The pursuit of their life supremely is not wealth. The pursuit is Jesus. Blessed are you who are willing to be, in the simplest form, willing to be poor for my sake, pursuing me greatly over all other treasures. To have me as your greatest treasure, you are in the most favorable position possible. Forget about the fact that you're poor because you get Jesus for all of eternity, the king of the world. What a great position you are in if Jesus is your treasure. You're choosing the right way. That's the right way. In corresponding, we see woe to you who are rich. It's not saying that everyone who's rich is going to hell. It's saying that if that's your main pursuit, the goal of your life, if that's your functional savior, if that's what you're trusting in for all of your satisfaction, woe to you. Because what you're gonna get is, your consolation is gonna be what you get in pursuing your riches, which are merely your riches, and they fall way short of the value of having Jesus, right? So that's what you're gonna get if you pursue that as your supreme value. And believe me, that doesn't stack up. It does not stack up to having Christ for all of eternity. So listen, you are truly my disciples. This is upside down way. When I am supreme, when Jesus is your treasure, this is the way of salvation. You consider yourself in the most favorable position possible, right? Matthew 6, 19 through 24. Do not lay up for yourselves, what? Treasures on earth. No one can serve two masters for either he will hate one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The order is rank. What are you pursuing as your supreme treasure? And so for a minute, I wanna speak as we close this point to show what, the, what state we're in blessed, most favorable position, when Jesus is our treasure for our reward is that we get God for all of eternity. This is the upside down kingdom. I wanna speak to one aspect of application. The clearest way that the Bible evidences this 
is by how we deal with our money. It reveals to us the state that our heart is in. If Jesus is our treasure or if God is. And for the whole, the way in which God has designed this to function is through the local church. It's through giving. And I'm not speaking for our church, I'm speaking to the American culture and the American church, right? If you're not giving, even if you're new here, if you're coming from out of town and you have a different church, I'm speaking to everyone everywhere. Don't trust your reasonings as to why you're not giving to the mission of God. Because if you trust your reasonings, you're probably lying to yourself. The fact that you're saying, well, maybe I will give one day when this, that, whatever. No, no, it's, let me just help you. Listen, and I help, I'm helping myself. My, my heart, your heart, it's tempted to make money my treasure and Jesus not my treasure. That's the temptation, right? That's the temptation. Most of the American culture, the individualism over the institution believes that I'm actually doing the church a favor by merely attending their church. Like they should be happy that I'm attending their church and that I'm a part of their church as whatever. That's my favor to them. Therefore, like, what else do I need to contribute? Church, if that's your perspective, you gotta change it. Because that shows that your heart is off. My heart is off if I view it that way. This is all about the kingdom, advancing the kingdom of God and displaying that Jesus is my treasure to the world. I'm not doing anybody a favor, not doing any pastor or church a favor, right? We're pursuing a mission together. And in the course of that, Jesus is refining my heart as I let go of my earthly treasures. It reveals where my treasure is. Blessed are you when Jesus is your supreme treasure, not wealth, because you have eternal life. We need to be a people who live like this. We can't be an American culture that prizes wealth and colors it with Jesus, right? Like we can't do that anymore. That's not the main pursuit of our life, okay? You're not doing God a favor, the kingdom a favor or anything else. Jesus is watching and sees your heart. And I'm speaking to myself too. I don't wanna be one who prizes wealth and my kids to see, man, my dad acts like he loved Jesus, but really his main pursuit is the pursuit of wealth because I watch him not give, right? Number two, what we see in our passage, <clears throat> that's the hard one. Number two, what we see in our passage is Jesus over food. Jesus over food. Again, I'm taking this to mean physical. I think it's speaking literal here. And so I'm gonna take it like that because it speaks to the same aspect, just gives us more elaboration. We do all the setup work in the first verse and before in the first uh, point and before that, so we don't have to really do much here. This is easy now, right? Blessed, we already understand. This is easily understood, right? Blessed are you who are hungry. Not saying that you have to be hungry for salvation. Like, ready, everybody, get hungry. If you eat, don't eat today, tomorrow, you will be saved. That's not what he's saying here, right? That's not a prerequisite, okay, for salvation. He might be saying that in Matthew, I think he is. You'd be hungry for righteousness, right? And then you will see your need for a savior and be saved. But here, I don't think he's saying that. Here, again, the corresponding woe. Those who are full, woe to you who are full. Not those who are full, like woe to you if you sit at your table and you're full, like, man, now I'm in a bad spot, I just lost my salvation, right? 
What he's saying is if you pursue that supremely, if your pursuit for your life supremely is to make your belly full, then Jesus isn't your treasure, your belly is, your food is. And that's not the one who will be satisfied for all of eternity, thinking later versus thinking now. The one who is saved is the one who has made Jesus their treasure. Look at this, Matthew 6, 31 through 33. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For those who are unsaved seek those things. And it's not that we who trust those things or seek those things don't pursue them. Like, I gotta eat, I'm hungry. I can't wait till new attenders lunch, right? It's not that we don't seek those things. What's the difference? Look at this. The Gentiles are those who seek those things above all things. How do we know that? Verse 33, seek what? First. The issue is rank. Ranking is the issue. What is supreme? What is supremely valuable? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will be added to you. The one who knows Jesus, the mark of a Christian, the one who will inherit and be satisfied um, in eternal life for all time is the one whose main pursuit is not their food, but is Jesus, the one who has made Jesus their treasure. Jesus is supreme to food. The one who's willing to be hungry for Jesus' sake is blessed. Why? Because they have a superior reward, which is to be satisfied for all of eternity. Now listen, the idea of satisfied, you guys know the word insatiable, like you're unable to, to, to be filled up, right? Satisfied shows us a word that is, we're like there's, there's no more need or want or lack to be filled. That's what satisfied is. You've chosen the right way because there will be no more lack. You will have no more need. You know, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not what? Want. John four, when he speaks to the woman at the well, bless uh, everyone who drinks of this water will never be thirsty again. You will be filled up with what? With him. The wedding banquet of the lamb, you're not like eating food. In eternity, you don't need food. It's an imagery. You're filled up in his presence, right? That's what heaven is. He is satisfying to you. And so if Jesus is your treasure and that results in hunger, if Jesus is your treasure, because he's supremely valuable, you're dying to yourself, you're following his ways, you're sold out to his mission to reach the world, you're standing for truth, how should you think about that? You should think about it like you're blessed because you're in the most favorable position. You have a great reward. You're gonna be satisfied for all of eternity. You should be happy. You should be so happy in light of the fact of your superior reward because Jesus is your treasure. This is what the mark of a Christian is. The one who makes Jesus supreme even over the pursuit of food. So let me ask you, is Jesus your treasure? Is he your main pursuit? Do you pursue him even over wealth and even over food. Number three, what we see in our passage is Jesus over earthly joy. Jesus over earthly joy, right? Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied, right? In his presence is the fullness of joy. You're going to be satisfied in his presence. You will have no more lack, no more need, no more want. And Verse 21, second half, blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. 
So Jesus over earthly joy. What he's not teaching, once again, is you want to get saved? Start crying, right? Like, you don't cry, you ain't saved, okay? So you better figure out how to cry. Like, what he's saying is, blessed are you who listen. If you're following me right now and you're poor, if you're following me right now and you love me and you're hungry, if you're following me right now and you're weeping, what, how should you think about this? Rejoice. Be glad. You're blessed. You're in the most favorable position, even if you're weeping. Why? This is upside down, right? Why? Because you have such a great reward, you're going to laugh for all of eternity. You're going to laugh for all. You're going to have so much joy that you can't even contain it in his presence for all of eternity. Because Jesus is your treasure. Everything else pales in comparison, even earthly joy. So listen, even if following Jesus results in enduring hardship for his sake, making him supremely valuable, dying to yourself, following his ways, sold out to his mission, standing for truth, you should be happy. Why? Because you will experience eternal joy. Eternal joy, right? Forever. In college, I used to use the, when I used to speak to college students, I used to use the example of eternity being like an ant walking around the earth in the same path over and over and over and over and over again until he wore the earth out and it split in half. Now, how long would that take? Right? A really long time. That's not even a day in eternity. Like, it's forever and ever, and you will experience eternal joy in his presence forever. Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is what? At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The mark of a true Christian is one who makes Jesus supreme even over temporary happiness. Ask yourself, is Jesus your treasure? Is Jesus your treasure? Do you pursue him in such a way that's greater than the pursuit of your wealth? Is Jesus your treasure? Is your pursuit of him superior to the pursuit of filling your belly? Is Jesus your treasure? Is your pursuit of him superior to having temporary, right now, happiness? Or is your life full? The, the goal of your life is to find happiness in this life. Man, you're selling yourself short. Think about later versus thinking about now. Sometimes you're gonna laugh here in life, right? You're gonna experience a lot of pain because of sin and Satan and sickness, right? Blessed are you who are willing to cling on to Jesus, Jesus of superior worth, that you're holding on to him and you're not ready to forsake him just to find earthly joy. Because that's the mark of one who's gonna laugh forever. Number four, lastly, what we see in our passage is Jesus over earthly acceptance. I love this one. I'm up on time. I wish I could spend a lot of time on it, right? I'm gonna cut you short, but let's read it. Blessed are you when people hear you or hurt you, or hate you, <laughs> and when they exclude you, and when they revile you, and when they spurn you as evil on the account of the Son of Man. Like, what? This upside down kingdom. What you talking about, Jesus? You got something wrong with your, with your head. Like, blessed, right? Most favorable position when you're excluded, when you're reviled, when you're spurned as evil on the, like, who views that as blessing, right? There's something wrong with you. This is upside down. He clarifies it, even clarifies blessedness by giving us synonyms, right? Different way of saying the same thing, verse 23. 
rejoice in that day and leap for joy. You should leap for joy and you should rejoice in the day that you are spurned, rejected, excluded, reviled because of the Son of Man. Go, go away leaping, right? Why? Behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets, the prophets. If you deny this and you don't want the rejection, you would be considered in this category false prophets. So listen, let me tell you this, right? This is great news for the Christian. Just along the same lines as everything else, if earthly acceptance is your supreme pursuit, Jesus is not your treasure and your reward is not in heaven. Your supreme pursuit should not be earthly acceptance. Your supreme pursuit should be Jesus. And if you're rejected on his account because he is your treasure, if you're reviled, if you're scorned, if you're excluded, you're in the most favorable position because you get him for all of eternity. That's the evidences of one who has made Jesus their treasure, right? How do we know what this, the opposite looks like? Let me just show you this, verse 26. Woe to you, the corresponding woe, when all people speak well of you. That's the corresponding woe. So listen, if Jesus is your treasure, I'll just go ahead and tell you, everybody is not going to speak well of you. Everybody is not going to speak well of you. I don't care who it is. I don't care if it's your buddies. I don't care if it's your coworkers. I don't care if it's your family. No matter what, not everybody's gonna speak well of you. Why? Because you stand for something, right? This is the upside down kingdom. You stand for something and that something is truth, right? And that's what happens. If you stand for something, if you're moving in a direction, if you're carrying a mission, right? That's contrary to the human nature with this, which is sinful, you are going to be excluded, reviled, scorned and excluded. And so don't, listen, let me just tell you, we're, we're done. You, you, you being spoken well of all the time by people is not your goal. That's not the standard. Making Jesus your treasure and standing for truth is your supreme pursuit. The mark of a true Christian is the one who makes Jesus supreme or even over acceptance and approval and being liked by everybody, right? This is the standard. So let me ask you this. Is Jesus your treasure? Are you willing to be excluded, reviled, spurned as evil on the account of the Son of Man, right? Are you willing to, to do that? Or is your main pursuit the acceptance of all people for your life? Is that your treasure? The one who makes Jesus their treasure will receive eternal life. Church, as we close, here it is, the upside down kingdom. The one who will inherit the kingdom of God is the one who prizes Jesus over wealth, prizes Jesus over food, prizes Jesus over earthly joy, and prizes Jesus over earthly acceptance. My prayer to you is that you would, for you is that you would make Jesus your treasure. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today. We're thankful for your word, how it teaches us. I pray that you would use your word in our life, in our lives, is that we would make you our supreme treasure. We would make you our greatest hope. We would look not to the now, but we would look to eternity. And we would rejoice in whatever comes our way because we are in the most favorable position, right standing before you. 
and we're happy about that. God, please use your word as we leave here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure. 